Welcome, friends, to Beyond the Sectors, your bi-monthly podcast all about the beyond world of author duo Kit Roca. My name is Chelsea. And I'm Anna. And we are here today to do book four and a half. Yeah. Um, it's the Beyond Solitude. It's the intermediary novella um, right after Beyond Jealousy. Well, technically during Beyond Jealousy. Yes, during Beyond <laughs> Jealousy. That's true. We get a little uh, time jumpy kind of deal. We had talked briefly in our last episode about combining this one with book five. But we actually, like, these, the novellas are getting a little longer and they're getting a little meatier. So we actually are going to go ahead and do each one with its very own dedicated episode um so lucky for you friends is even more stuff to listen to there you go um, but we will just be doing beyond solitude today uh as always anna do you want to give us a little plot synopsis sure beyond solitude is a story of mia and ford ford is a long time okane but we've never met him before he we've heard of him uh he is essentially like a resource scout for the okanes he goes out to the farms he brings in all that stuff that the okanes need and he goes badly injured in one of the other books and um he is stuck on the compound very grumpy uh doing paperwork and in his life enters mia mia is a refugee from sector two she escaped uh orchid house like lex and she is trying to build a new life in the sectors after she abandoned her patron and they're the combustible, grumpy guy meets a uh, girl who wants to hope for a better life. Yes, it is very much so. We have a, had a lot of shades of this, but I think this might be our most um, Slytherin and Hufflepuff romance to date in terms of uh, our, our, grump, our grumpy dear old Ford and our trying her hardest to be hopefully optimistic Mia. Uh, it is difficult for her coming from Sector 2. I think this really kind of continues to expand what we know about Orchid House and the kind of treatment and things uh, that go on at Orchid House because she the Mia's the second girl that we've seen uh, as we know Lex that was her house before she escaped and uh, Lex has become somewhat of a a legend mm-hmm. and a, a figure that a lot of the girls in two look up to and now here is Mia kind of trying to do uh, the same thing it ends up happening in kind of a different way which ends up playing into the overall power discussion in this book, which I think is one of the most powerful things this book has to offer, no pun intended. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. I love a grumpy hero. So I've always loved Ford, but I know sometimes <laughs> they don't always work for everyone quite as well. I remember loving Ford from the beginning, just be- but it was funny rereading it because he is so terrible. So terrible. He's so grumpy. And that their so first mean. encounter, he is just rude and crude and just... It's a miracle she doesn't, like, fly out of that office and tell Lex, can I do something else? Because he is just not having it that this girl's showing up in there. He's treating her like she doesn't belong. It really feels like he's an old school O'Kane who's still just trying to get used to, like, Lex is really in charge here uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) kind of stuff. Um, He almost feels like a a Dallas 2 or something. Like, he's, he's almost cut from that same kind of more old school mold he feels very much like a dallas kind of hero to me right with even with the whole like he's attached to his paper and his Mm -hmm. files and his handwriting and this girl wants to come and shake his world up and put digitize things and um 
yeah. So it, it was really interesting to me. Like, I like a grumpy hero. I like breaking down somebody's self-pityingness because he is so self-pitying. Um, but he was hardcore. I, I was like, wow, she has her work cut out with him. And I think this is really interesting. We keep seeing this theme over and over again, especially when it comes to uh, the women who are entering, like, the Okane compound. This idea of... Uh, relational exchange and what they have to offer or what they are quote-unquote worth and this is I think um the first character the first time we've really seen a character who's struggling with coming like very very recently from that history of like sex work and being owned and so a big part of Mia's story is um not doing that anymore being a completely self-sufficient and independent person and so this is actually we spend like the first little chunk of this book not in the compound yeah which I think did some really interesting things for the world building of just Sector 4, which continues to get expanded each time we get another book. Yeah, you really get a sense of like you know, the difference in the power differential between being an O'Kane and being that and navigating Sector 4. We have Mia living in this like rundown apartment with barely any power, no cold, warm water, um, and really having no protection. You know, essentially, that's how you have her set up. She's come from having a patron and a life of luxury. She's left that behind. And she has this rundown apartment where she, you know she's paying way too much for what she's getting. Mm-hmm. And there's no safety, no security. Um, and I, it's really visceral the, when you're walking around the market as her mm-hmm. versus when she's with Ford or another O'Kane. Yeah, and it's it becomes really pivotal because there's a kind of inciting incident about a third of the way through the, the novella which kind of gets her onto the compound and really immerses her in okay in life. But it's, you know, she basically walks in on a home invasion of her landlord and the people doing it put a gun to her head. Literally the only thing that keeps her alive is the fact that one of these guys saw her in the market with an O'Kane. And so that's the first time that like, because we're on the outside, you can see the ripples of, we hear a lot about the protection of the O'Kanes, but you really see right. the, last the various time we, ways. We really saw that was when Noel falls into Jess's arms after basically being drugged by a random person in the market. Which is like the second page of the first book. It's like yeah. the very first thing we see. Because all the other heroines in between, they've had, they're already O'Kanes or they've mm-hmm. come into the O'Kanes from another sector, like um, Six. So they don't experience being like a resident of Sector 4. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting because you're seeing Mia's figuring what it means to be an okay now. She's there because of Lex. Mm-hmm. You know, she's been inspired by Lex. Lex is her hero, has come there. But she doesn't really understand the dynamics of Sector 4 and what it means to be an okay. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of people, she comes and she's very... Um... She's kind of afraid. I think that because of the way the other sectors operate, they build a lot of fear of sector four because of the freedom that they know that draw is. So they have to balance that somehow. So I think when she's first there, she's still kind of battling all those like inner images that she's been taught. But it's also really interesting because she feels this power and protection of the O'Kanes, but also like that is a, a power that is hers, but not hers. And that's a world that she's really used to operating in. Right, the reflected power the of re- sex work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's interesting to watch that struggle because it's the way that that same kind of power dynamic can be used both for good and also for evil. Right, quote, I mean, quote, it, like you have, 
she comes from a, a very transactional location, right? She mm-hmm. gives her body and her devotion to this patron who will protect her and, and take care of her. Um, and it, she's been in a rather abusive relationship. And so she is negotiating, trying to figure out what does she owe Ford as her boss? Like, mm-hmm. is it just her work? Is something more expected of her? Um, and will they, the O'Kane stand by her if her boss is terrible to her? You know, that's that's a real big question, especially mm-hmm. the more aware she is of the O'Kane power. Um, so she has to like understand that the O'Kanes won't let her be hanging even though she doesn't have ink on her arms. Mm-hmm. Um, that's such a big moment where she realizes they trusted her. Like when she said, yeah, I gotta, they, they took her word. And I think that that's, you know, the big takeaway for me from this book is always that this is a book in which the power balance and the understanding of power dynamics is the key takeaway. Like that is a theme that runs under all of these books, much like consent and empowerment mm-hmm. and all of those things. But like in this book, it is a key like plot point that Ford doesn't understand and thus completely violates so many of these power structures in a way that ends up being incredibly abusive, even though he's doing it for a very good and loving reason. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, there's so much talk about agency and what that means um, and how he really just wants to run over it because it's simpler and easier for him than Mm -hmm. to watch her struggle to do something for herself. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's interesting, like the boss, uh, employee trope is not a trope that I love um, because most of the time power dynamics are not so expressly in the center yeah, of them. They're, yeah, they're usually done badly <laughs> or and, not at all. And, mm-hmm. and because that's their conflict. This is, this really works for me. And I like, I find that that trope only works for me when people are like, yes, this guy has way too much power and he's going to have to learn how to dial back. Um, she's going to have to claim stuff from people who want to, take stuff from her you know and I think it's really important that in this book it follows a very almost kind of like insidious progression that is that doesn't start out that way like it starts with he gets her a heater like he knows he doesn't she doesn't have a heater in her apartment or that the heater is really spotty so he gets her one and like that's just nice like it's nice that he bought her a gift like that but like it slowly progresses from that into more and more him kind of overstepping that boundary I always got the feeling in this book that Ford doesn't really take it seriously that he's Mia's boss or he just doesn't really think of her as his employee in a way that allows him to kind of dismiss when well I think Lex tries to like come at him with it yeah I, I feel like yeah there's a he doesn't really understand I think he's forgotten how powerful he is as a as an O'Kane mm-hmm. um and how intimidating that would be uh, and, you know, he didn't hire her. She was sent into his office. So he sees her as Dallas and Lex's employee. But that's not the same for Mia. Mia feels like if she fails with Ford, maybe that's it for her. Um, mm. So there's that, there's, you know, sort of gaps in their understanding and communication about who's there and why. Um, and where I feel like in the end, they're really, they're, both going to be in charge of this thing versus being uh, subordinate and superior kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Which is why I think that skipping ahead to the kind of very end of the book, just to finish talking about the relationship stuff, and then we'll talk about some of the world building that happens in the book. um, 
I always think it's so incredibly endearing and it's an almost unusual way of getting this across but the fact that to make up to her for the way he's violated his balance of power he presents her with a bill like he literally presents her with like I bought you a coat and I let you stay in my room. Like, yeah, it's like romance by accounting, you know. <laughs> yeah, and it reminds me, it reminds me of that scene from the Gilmore Girls, honestly, when Rory turns eighteen and Lorelai goes in her room with a like bill mm. of all of the things she's paid for. And like describing it, it doesn't necessarily sound sweet, but in doing that, Ford is acknowledging that he is not giving anything to her that she is not capable of handling or paying or providing for herself he's not doing her favors they're on an equal footing and that's what she needs to hear from him after he violated her power like that yeah and i and i love that she notices like he he even fudges the numbers like he can't Mm -hmm. like he's trying so hard to be like upfront about it but he even as he's putting together the account you can see that this is a struggle for him and Mm -hmm. that she finds that charming Uh, that's what you know how she's how gone yeah how gone she is for him actually you know because for what she needed was an acknowledgement of why this matters um and that's where she has the security of asking him to share the load rather than like she can welcome him into helping her rather than him sort of busting in through the door and saying, I am going to save you and take all your problems away. Because mm-hmm. that's that's exactly what he does in that that moment when because essentially what happens is Mia goes back to sector two to, to Karis to buy her freedom, basically to pay out her contract. And when she gets there, she's all prepared for a battle. She's got money that she's borrowed. She's ready to handle it herself. And she gets there. Turns out Karis is good. And she's good because Ford already paid her. And the first time, and then again, this time reading this book, when you actually realize that's what happened, like your first instinct or my first instinct was to be glad she didn't have to go through that process. But then the instant you realize why and what he has done without her consent or her knowledge, it just is such a punch in the gut right because he lets her go that's the mm-hmm. worst part um because it's not only that he went behind her back and did it and you could say well he just was solving getting the middleman out of the way you know mm-hmm. um and that's what dallas calls him on it you know like she it's it takes so much courage for her to go in front of karis and to to have put in the work to negotiate this loan and to figure and it was for nothing, you know, mm-hmm. and he let her, ha- you know, all he had to say is like, I'm going to take care of this. And then they kind of have their fight then. But mm-hmm. he knows it's wrong. Yeah. And so it's that whole like, you know, we've seen it with Dallas of knowing something is wrong and they'll try and think like you can get away with it. Mm-hmm. And then like, crap, I can't get away yeah. with this at all. And it really takes him a while and it takes him it takes Lex, you know, yet again, coming to be her wise queen Lex self to point out to him that, like, it's not about the money. It has mm-hmm. nothing to do with the money. It has everything to do with what the money represents and what he did with the money without bringing her into it in any way. So it gets into a completely different level of, like, consent and autonomy that has nothing to do with their sexual relationship and everything to do with everything else. Right. And I mean, because there's also the interplay of, like, he's been in this like pity partying place right so he's oh, he is so <laughs> he is so he's for the so sad and, for himself. And, yeah and you know like he takes this injury as an excuse to like separate himself even further from the O'Kanes um 
like he feels like he doesn't belong not because anybody's not made him feel like he belongs but he feels you know so he separated yeah. himself out and then when he enrages me in this way by taking this from her um he just goes and sulks and yeah. you know he's like well i guess i broke that and you're like do something buddy like other than fix get it. drunk you broke it then fix it <laughs> i know he's such a sad like I just heard such sad trombone noises for Ford. I'm just like, wah, wah. Like, your leg is broken and you're sad and you're hurt. And, like, and like you get it because this is – you clearly get the impression this is a man who is used to a large amount of autonomy. Mm-hmm. Like, even belonging to the Okanes, he's the one who's always going on, like, the distance runs. He's the one who's spending a large amount of time away, like, on the farms and talking to all their, like, distributors and suppliers. And he has the power of negotiation, right? Mm-hmm. He's not calling Dallas up and saying, hey, I got this good price. Mm-hmm. He had – this is something I mean he is somebody other than jazz that you really get a sense that Dallas has trusted with a big chunk of his empire for a long time yeah and so you can I can understand how in that place then having that taken away and being quote-unquote trapped in this you know much more confined (laughs) life and space would get very frustrating yet again the he's no cane so he's just deals with it by getting drunk or being an asshole but like i can understand where that impetus comes from and it it's up to his brethren to kind of keep him in check which is one of the well really and it's interesting aspects. like when we first meet him he's in the broken circle getting drunk he doesn't know any of the women's names yeah so he's like trying to use different uh um you know darling sweetheart you know kind of stuff <laughs> you're like dude you need to get to know their names <laughs> Like, so, come on, dude. Yeah, but it, that just shows how much he's pulled away. Mm-hmm. Because it's sort of like when he was out on the road, everybody fell in love, and there's this mess. <laughs> he just doesn't get it. I was say, he feels almost as much like an outsider as Mia does, even though he mm-hmm. is an okay, and he's got the ink, he's in the family. I think it's always, like, this is yet again an example. There's one line where Dallas talks about how it really kind of bums them out that... Yeah. Ford walked back 10 miles on a broken leg because he didn't think anybody was going to come for him. And of course, Ford says it's not about that. It's that he didn't just want to sit and wait. But like, but you really get a sense that it's toxic masculinity there mm-hmm. that he has to take himself there. He doesn't trust the gang because he's he doesn't have them around. And, and yeah, it's such a moment where he has to realize, confront that he hasn't trusted them to be his family. Just and as it really much bites as... him in the ass. Yeah, yeah. By you know... the time he's walked back, he's he's fucked up his body beyond their medical repair technology. Right. If, if regen really stuff himself. can't help you, you're in deep shit. Uh... I did like that part where he was like, "What am I gonna do?" And the doctor's like, "The same thing everybody else did for two thousand years when they didn't have regen technology. We're gonna set your leg." And... You're going to heal like a human being. Well, and you know, it's interesting too. Um, I feel like we see regen tech a lot in the early books. And then because of world building stuff, we're going to see it a lot less. Mm-hmm. Um, there's That becomes a, a power dynamic thing of who has access to it and how, what you do to get it. Uh, so I feel in, in some ways, this was a way of sort of like dialing back down the magic cure of the regen tech mm-hmm. and making... Um, some of these injuries are a lot more dangerous because it isn't like we have like this doctor who can swoop in. Uh, in fact, mm-hmm. the doctor that we have, we as we start discovering, he's a little doped up a lot of the time. Um, yeah, 
Doc isn't always necessarily the doctor you might want to have nearby. Definitely but doesn't have the bedside manner. <laughs> All right, well, that's probably a good start. Do we want to go ahead and talk about some of the other world building that we see going on in this book? Because we sure. really are starting to get more into um, not just the other sectors in Eden, but now we're starting to get glimpses of the lives that live in between. Yeah. That they're not fully in the sectors. They don't live in the city. They're kind of in these own little pockets of their own communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, I mean, th this is the book that don't they go out and get like empanadas, basically? Mm -hmm. in, yeah, yep, yep. they go back in, to Ford's. Like, home basically you yeah. like or his home away from home i get the feeling this is kind of his right home like it's, base like, when it's he's like not on the, the edge of sector four yeah. and it's sort of like this is the as far in as he gets normally into sector four like sort of swoops into just this, this little corner um and i love yes we get sort of uh latino culture again and um we have sort of a sense of a wider community. It's not just a marketplace with houses around it all by the walls, but there is fields and land and actually a sort of sprawling landscape that is all under the influence. Mm -hmm. And it's really an interesting um, kind of expansion because this is a zone that exists, like you said, really on the very edge of Sector 4, maybe not even technically like in Sector mm -hmm. 4. Like I think they technically leave like the official boundaries but it's still a matter of the the power of the Okanes to have that kind of ripple outward to the point where these people still feel they're under the umbrella of the Okane protection being in Sector mm -hmm. 4. Because we go to right up to the edge, right outside the Sector 4, it does set us up for Beyond Addiction when we go visit those areas, um, which we'll talk about in the next podcast. Which we will talk about in the next episode. But we do meet in this one the um, kind of second family. Yeah that um, Ford has adopted. There's the the couple that runs this kind of little um, compound, basically, this mm -hmm. little community where they have these empanadas and they refer to um, Ford very much so like family. He almost yeah. feels like this kind of uncle figure to all these people that live here, which is an interesting side to see because it almost feels like he has a closeness with them that he doesn't have with the O'Kanes. Right. Probably right. because obviously this is where he's stopping in more often than he's going all mm -hmm. the way back to the compound. But it's just interesting the, to see the ease in which he operates in one setting versus the other when he is technically an O'Kane. Right, because, I mean, there he is not his self-pitying persona. I think he's very much the figure that we... That, like. I think Mia really understands who he is in that moment because of mm -hmm. the way he interacts with people, how he can have these conversations. You really get a sense of, like, this is the guy who goes out and makes deals. Mm -hmm. It makes people trust him. And like you said, I think it's really important. And it didn't even really fully hit me until you were talking about it, that like he really is operating as like an independent contractor. Like he mm -hmm. really is doing all of this with Dallas's kind of rubber stamp. And so the amount of trust and the amount of longevity that Dallas would have had to know him in order to do that really kind of gives you a scope of his history with the family without even mm -hmm. having to put that entire like back story on paper right right he's not a fight night but he's still an okay mm -hmm. very very much so um okay wrapping up a little bit did we want to talk about like particular favorite favorite parts or parts that we didn't think worked 
quite as seamlessly as some other parts. No, I, I was going to say one of the interesting parts to me was getting to know a little bit more about the Orchid House. Um, mm. The whole thing that Mia is trained as an accountant. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think we've we've established that they are given these vast knowledge of manipulation mm-hmm. uh, and how to make men do their bidding. And Mia was stuck in this situation where the thing that she's been trained to do as a manipulating, beautiful woman mm-hmm. um, is what puts her on the outside with her patron. And then, you know, it's interesting to me, just like, why would they train her in accounting except if she was, she was supposed, she did that for Vaughn, which mm-hmm. is something that we never, I don't think we've seen in the prior pa- uh, uh, patron mm-hmm. relationships. So that was sort of an interesting thing that they're not just being trained to be like sexual objects or hostesses, but helpmates, you know, in a, mm-hmm. in a entrusted assistance and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that was sort of like, oh, like, wow, that's an interesting little twist to Orchid House that I never really thought about. Uh, but that led to, the, for me, I, the the beatdown in the market where uh, mm-hmm. Ford beats Vaughn, that never worked for me um, mm-hmm. because I just, I don't know. It, it was like, wow, that's another body to get rid of. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that's an element that wasn't my favorite in the story. Mm-hmm. It feels a little brash and that feels that feels weird to say because this is obviously a community in which if you mess with the okanes and the people who the okanes love like that is the reaction that's kind of coming for you but i don't necessarily think we've ever seen it on the page quite as bluntly like ford just she's mad i mean like it's just it's done like he says he silences him with a bullet and then it's just done and it's a very immediate and cold and not impetuous but almost you get that feeling that like well, and because you think about like this should have consequences. This is a guy who's important enough to have a home in sector two. Also, that to me, it's a, it's a little moment there. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I needed Vaughn to show up. Um, mm-hmm. And it was interesting that what it does do is that you have Mia sort of have that moment of like, I'm done hiding from him. In um, sort of also the knowledge that other people will look after her not just Ford uh, because people run in the market and try to help her out Mm -hmm. and I do think that that's I like that she gets that moment I like that she gets to have that on the page realization but I agree there was something about everything else that was going on and her dealing with Karis and that whole power negotiation that then having him also show up just kind of felt like Mm-hmm. one more yeah like i, I don't think more... i needed ever to see vaughn again i think he was such a damaging mm-hmm. figure uh and boy was he a mess but i do like what you're saying picking up on the world building because this is also when we start to learn even more that there are other houses we've heard a little bit about that before but this is the first book where we really see differentiation right between... so we so we've known about the rose um mm-hmm. because we that's what jade was and uh mm-hmm. avery is um so we know about the roses and now the orchids, but we really didn't get a sense of other than like what kind of seduction they do, mm-hmm. what other things that they might be like. Mm-hmm. And you really, this is the book where you really get that vibe that the Rose house is trained to be a very submissive, very almost like purely sexually engaged partner. Whereas like you're saying, the girls trained at orchid house are very much so intended to be quote life partners and mm-hmm. business managers and life managers and all of those things while also being sexually available. So it's just, 
an even different like it's just even more layering of the intra-female dynamics that are mm-hmm. taking place within sector two mm-hmm. and that are trickling over into the O'Kanes because we have Jade and we have these people who are trained in the Rose House and also these people who are trained in Orchid House and it impacts the way they interact and find their place within the gang a little bit yeah and it's interesting like we get to see mia go back and see her old friend uh somebody Mm -hmm. who's who she's shared intimacies with and who is very close to mia's heart and have her sort of get scared and run away um Mm -hmm. that's sort of like a rejection of what they shared and just sort of like a what scary thing that Mia's embracing? You know, this new start for her is still super scary to the women uh, in Orchid House. So you get a sense of how successful Karis's boogeyman-ish of the mm-hmm. O'Kanes has been. So it's really remarkable that Mia makes the choices that she makes. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, yeah, we get the sense of, like, we see a little bit of the, the peak inside, the, the community of the women inside mm-hmm. uh, Sector 2. The... Um, forbidden uh moments of of intimacy and love that they have to steal you know they're being told being told that their bodies are these these tools and they belong to their patrons and they have to steal those moments away Mm -hmm. and that's what makes it so hard for her or such an adjustment for her when she's then in the O'Kane compound and she's having some of those same moments and feelings and affections towards the other O'Kane women, but it doesn't have that lingering anxiety or fear of having to be something that's clandestine or inappropriate or not mm-hmm. allowed. And so she kind of has a moment where she wrestles with that feeling of freedom, but how also like disconcerting it can be as much as it's something that she wants, which is a moment that we see her kind of repeat over and over as different doors open to her inside the O'Kane. Like, right. Compound. You know, and you know, we've, we've seen um, Lex sort of deprogram some beliefs. We see uh, six deprogram some of these negative beliefs and you really get to see it here in Mia. So some very explicit, like she has the trainer's voice in her head and how she has to reclaim her power over her own thoughts about herself. Mm hmm. So it's just really, really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yet again, Kit Roka has managed, they've managed to put so much into really not a ton of space. Um, really the biggest difference for me in reading this one versus in reading one of the full-length novels is that this one doesn't have the other um, like little character excerpts, but really otherwise it, it feels and it hits as, as hard as I think one of the actual full-blown novels does. Right, it hits all those thematic points that the the, the the novels constantly hit um and so and it has its own complete arc in that way um so yeah it was interesting for me the hardest part about the, reading this again was finding it um <laughs> i forgot that i had bought it as part of a box set it was in mm. office after dark with like vivian errand and um some other uh great novels and I actually texted Brie in the middle of the night. It was three in the morning and I could not find it on my Kindle and I wanted to read it. And I'm like, was it ever in a collection? (laughs) She came and bailed me out. So. Oh, bless you, Brie. Always (laughs) coming through when we need you the most. All right, friends. Well, that I think about wraps up our conversation of Beyond Solitude. 
Um, as always, we uh, will be back in a couple of weeks to talk mm-hmm. about the next full-blown novel, which is Beyond Addiction. In the meantime, Anna, do you want to tell them where they can find us online? Yes, find us at beyondasectors.com and also on Twitter at Beyond Sectors. All right, and you can find me on Twitter as at Life. And I'm Anna Koki on Twitter. And until next time, friends, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and we'll see you beyond the sectors. Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs>